Hey guys, how's it going? Welcome back. Of course, today is the inaugural episode of the brand new podcast series we're calling Ask a Depth Psychologist, where myself and Steve, who you're about to meet in just one moment, take your questions that you've submitted at the $10 tier or higher on Patreon, and we sort of just throw it between us, have a bit of a kickabout, and should be a good time. Of course, if you've been to this channel for a long time, you'll know myself, James, of course, but for the first time, I'm going to introduce you to the man, the myth, the legend himself, Steve Richards. How are you, Steve? Hi, James. Nice to see you. Fantastic. Absolutely fa fantastic. So, of course, Steve is, um, well, he's, if I'm the young guy on the channel, Steve is kind of like the brains of the operation, if you like. He's my friend. He is my mentor. He has 40 years, 40 years plus, I believe, but that might be showing your age, of course, clinical experience, <laughs> in-depth psychology. You've been endorsed by Anthony Stevens and Ernest Ross. You've done tons of cool stuff. I'm sure people can hear your your story at some point on the channel, but yep. we're going to get into some of the questions. So question number one comes from Foster Ellis, and he says, I've mentioned in the Discord that I want to build an AI around the Jungian model of the psyche. Essentially, right. I would build an artificial Jungian psyche and place it in a virtual world and then have it individuate in the hopes that the resulting psyche would have an understanding of its world built into its idiosyncratic structure. However, it occurred to me that this completely neglects the effects in the social world that the social world has on individuation. With this context in mind, what is the role of the social world in the individuation process? What do you think, Steve? Well, I think that's a fantastic project. If you can pull it off, it will really add overall to our knowledge base, which is, which is amazing and is incredible. But I think has gone into that. Um, for individuation, you can't individuate alone. It, it can't be done. Unless you're so introverted, you're virtually schizoid and completely withdrawn away from human contact. But for proper individuation, you have to have a relationship to the social world. Um, I imagine that that would cause problems because every other artificial intelligence um, element, if you like, within that program would have to be at a similar level um to the the Jungian based one so the whole thing would then become like a Jungian world amazing if it could be pulled off but yeah you, you have to function in a social environment in order to individuate because the psyche anticipates this yeah so this is uh, obviously behind you there is a, a picture of the muse right i've noticed uh, i don't know oh, yeah. do, 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 that, that, that was deliberate obviously you've got your your, your wife there and you describe well, yourself she, as uh, she wouldn't come on camera today because and the photograph's 40 years old so i thought i'd teach her a little <laughs> bit of a lesson like you know um now you're going to disappoint everybody because that's how you look 40 years ago <laughs> well you described <laughs> you described me before that you're in an individuation marriage right so i guess the idea yeah, with that yeah. is, is the two of you individuate together which kind of hits on the topic of this question how does that then look like in terms of a marriage an individuation wow. marriage what makes that different to a normal marriage well i i think we both had to want that kind of thing from the start i mean um she embarked on this at the age of 16 which is pretty young mm -hmm. um i met her when she was just turned 15 i was 19 nearly 20 um so i had a few years on it and at that age there's quite a gap really um i was into depth psychology from the age of 11 uh, it was Freud originally, and then from the age of 16, it was Jung. And when I found Jung at last, I thought I'd found somebody who could explain me to me. Um, then by the time I met Pauline, um, I think I was well on my way. I've been recording my dreams for years. I I'd been working on myself. 
I was in a very tough environment at the time. I was a, a police officer uh, in Merseyside and Liverpool, frontline mm-hmm. police officer. And I went in the police to pressure test myself, not just physically, but also morally. I thought this would be an ideal environment to test Jung's ideas. Could I go in there uh, and could I hold on to my moral values when faced with God knows what? And uh, the biggest shock, I don't know if you remember the Life on Mars TV series from some years ago that was showing the, the police in the 70s. Well, it was really like that. Mm-hmm. There were men who'd gone through the Second World War and then 30 years in the police, pretty much. Um, and then I came along like some kind of hippie, they thought. With these weird ideas and so I was maladjusted with respect to my environment immediately but being young I dug my heels in and I wouldn't change and uh, I did everything I could to wind them up I'd be bringing books in by Carl Jung and I'd be leaving them around and reading them and that led to me being ostracized um, banished to outlying police stations all sorts of anything at all because it was really weird and strange but I would not give up on it Mm-hmm. And I was looking for the right girl, like I guess a, a lot of uh, the boyos are. And I was very, very fortunate in finding Pauline, but you don't know, obviously, at first whether you have found the right person or not. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I told her what I was into, and she was very young and impressionable, but great. She actually jumped on board with me, and we've been together, and we've been through a hell of a lot since. It's been a hell of a journey. Mm. But she, she's accompanied me on that, that, that trip now for 42 years yes yeah well it's a really good story and of course um you you're an intp as am i and i know that pauline is an esfj so in terms of of course we'll cover typology stuff on this channel in massive massive depth that's that's a speciality (laughs) of course of course so when you have sort of like two opposite types in a way they are opposite it's kind of like you take the Mm -hmm. intp cognitive stack if you like colloquially and you flip it on its head then basically yeah. you have the esfj so i guess in the context of individuating with somebody else it's a case of i guess young steve maybe like young me being intp you're all up in, in your head and you're going around with your intuition and, and your thinking and then she comes to you with her feeling and her sensing and she goes no steve get out of your head and you go yeah but 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 pauline think more you know is that type of thing is it more of a balancing act that you yeah, two have? um to be honest at first i kind of led the way because i was a bit further down the road than she was um and that meant she was very much in my slipstream mm. and it took quite a while to adjust to the fact that she was catching up uh, and in many ways it wasn't really until we started to work together rather than on each other in a therapy situation that I really saw, really, really saw how valuable ESFJ was and just mm-hmm. how good a therapist she was. She's, she's fantastic with people. She's fantastic with relationships, with families and so forth. Um, I'm really hot on the clinical side in terms of theory uh, and in terms of theory development. I always have been. Um, I pride myself on being effective as a clinician. Mm-hmm. But Pauline brings things to that that I don't readily access unless I dig deep into myself and vice versa. So yeah, it's, it's been great, uh, but it does take time. It's, it's not something you can just do a mouse click on and, and, and it just happens. You have to go through the fire really um, and test yourself. We, we've both been under terrific stresses in our lives and we've shared that and we've helped one another as we've, we've hit the troughs and then built back up towards the peaks. I believe that's what an individuation marriage should be. You have to go through things together and you, you keep going through it. It, it is a cyclical process. Um, 
it's, it's created a lot of problems in the profession. For example, we've mm -hmm. met a lot of people who've been very jealous of that. Mm -hmm. um, I can that, imagine that they don't have that or haven't had that. And therefore we can't, mm. and we don't shove it in anybody's face, anything like that. But you know, it was Pauline actually led the way and said, look, we should work together. Um, and she was working in adult psychiatry at the time. I, I went into uh, primary healthcare ahead of her. Uh, and she was a manager in adult psychiatry, in acute adult psychiatry at the time. And she came out and started working with me in primary healthcare. Uh, and yeah, it was the right thing to do. Up, up until that point, we were working on each other uh, and working in our different, uh, our different spheres. But yeah, when we sort of started to work together, I really, really saw the value of her and the value of her way of looking at things and her way of doing things. Mm. And it still, it still informs me today. Mm. Yeah. Talking to, to quite a few of my I guess, peers around my own age, very much think, well, it's interesting. Everyone in the Discord so far, except maybe one, is an intuitive type. So you can, you can automatically see that the way, for example, a community like this is, is crafted will be one-sided. And it's, you know, I talk to my peers and everything and it's like emotions are icky or we shouldn't, we shouldn't feel things and everything else. It's like, you, you don't grow like that. You know, it's no. been the same thing with myself and Jane, which we sussed out only yesterday. Yeah. Thought she was an ESFJ for a long time. Yeah. More likely she's an ISFJ. Yes. Which means like almost the complete opposite to me. You know, yeah. where, where if I'm, if the INTP is more of a knight, she's more of that. What, 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 what was the image you said yesterday? The, the, the Venus, Botticelli's Venus or something, right? Yeah, the, the way she struck us, um, she's very feminine yeah. in that classical medieval sort of way. And um, I, I think, yeah, Botticelli's Venus, certainly a Botticelli, maybe something from La Primavera, if you know that picture. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That, that kind of uh, ephemeral, virtual femininity. Yeah. Um, which is very nice. Very, very nice. Yeah. So, and I guess growing up, you're all one-sided and you think like your way is the only way but of course when you come across someone who's the opposite to you that's what helps you with individuation right rather than clustering yeah. with people who are the same as you of course you can do it when you go through problems together as you will balance out i, I imagine yeah. but appreciating the opposites in true jungian fashion if you like unification of the opposites then uh, yeah then can, can i just add that um she has, she has that quality with respect to her appearance but it's not just that you know she she does have that isfj quality which paired with her appearance gives her this air of being very feminine mm. uh, in that in that classical sense um if, if you just had the appearance without the personality that's that's not the same thing at all you know you, you need the both uh, obviously personality is more important ultimately because that's what you live with mm. Someone's personality is what you interact with. It's what helps you to grow and helps you to develop. But yeah, um, she's a very nice girl. Very nice. Thank you. Thank you. I, I like to think that I picked right. Of course. Of course. You did. Now, now just behave yourself, James, and individuate, <laughs> individuate properly with her and develop all those sides of yourself you've hitherto left behind. Yes, that is the idea, but it is... Um... Yeah. It's harder than it makes out on the surface. People say balance, you know, balance the masculine and feminine yeah. energies within yourself is a meme which is thrown around. It's like, what the hell does that mean? Well, it, it takes time. Yeah, yeah. And it takes and real you, time you will, be, you will be pressure tested. You will be pressure tested. Yeah. Every relationship's pressure tested. Yeah, definitely. Well, uh, thank you for your question, Foster. We're going to move on to the second question now, which is from Franch Francisco. Uh, oh, yeah. Can one individuate if they are able to find a way to flourish within the abyss. Somebody has been reading too much Nietzsche, I think. For example, 
engaging in rent-seeking behavior within zero-sum games where all participants are aware of the rules and the risks, or is becoming corrupt and cynical, inevitable, if too long is spent there. So to, I guess to sort of translate that, because it's, it's kind of, well, it's written in a particular manner. Perhaps, perhaps the question is, is more appropriately phrased for the audience as, if your situation externally is really, really bad, so you're in the abyss, can yep. you still individuate? What do you think? Yes. It all depends on the starting position and the, the condition, if you like, of the, of the individual person. Character is more fundamental than type. Type is the vehicle for the expression of character. Your character is what will carry you through. And it's that that you have to come to terms with, what your character is. And when we get onto the personal myth, we'll be, we'll be looking at that in some depth. Some people go through the most horrendous things in life and still manage to become who they're meant to be. So individuation is a relative thing. For example, to give a negative, if Adolf Hitler individuates, then 60 million people die. So individuation in and of itself is not necessarily a good thing mm. per se. So you have to start with, with the individual character and then you have to look at the environment within which that character is either flourishing or not flourishing. Whether it's an abyss or not, um, that, if you like, there's a figure ground uh, consideration here that the character themselves is someone or is the thing that we have to work with and we have to work on personally and this is where you get the alchemical opus coming in as well so absolutely yes it is possible regardless of what you go through i i've seen some incredibly bad things uh, i i've had people die on the floor in front of me i had, had colleagues die violently on the floor in front of me i faced uh, armed criminals i've been involved in, in um sorting out terrorists without going into too much detail um i've been violently attacked hospitalized God knows how many times I've had dogs set on me, all sorts of things like that. And I've seen terrible human suffering in the police. And that for me was a moral test far more than it was a physical test, although it was physically hard at the time. Mm -hmm. I mean, Pauline, for example, would, uh, would get the knock on the door and I'd be in hospital again with either a head injury or wherever it was that had taken me out on this particular occasion. Mm. Or I wouldn't be coming home because I got involved in something awful, some terrible incidents. Um, but I tried to keep true to my fundamental beliefs and continually test myself whilst who I was came through. And simultaneously to working in the police, I was working as a volunteer therapist in a psychiatric hospital as well, being mentored myself by a psychotherapist at the time and supported by a professor of psychiatry in that and by a local clinical psychologist as well, who both saw, as I see in you, uh, both saw potential in me. Uh, and all of these things stress you. And if you don't have a partner who is prepared to help and go through that with you, it's very, very difficult. Mm. But yes, you can do it. You can. Yeah. So I, I guess a, a couple things on that then. This is a question I've been asked a couple of times in the Discord now. So you, let's, let's, give a, let's give an example. So you are a young guy. So you have a lot of potential. And say you're, uh, your mother's an alcoholic and your father's a drug addict. Random example. Yeah. And... Um, you want to break away, say, and be a musician because that's your true calling. That's, that's yeah. where you get energy from. But you yeah. feel you're duty-bound to look after your parents because if you come away, they're going to sort of collapse. Now, surely, at least in my understanding of individuation, to break away from that and to pursue what makes you happy and which brings out your inner zest, which in many ways would be the anima, your anima being developed, you getting closer in touch with that. Yeah. But 
to do that surely there's a where's the role for duty in that then if if, if you see what i mean when yeah, I when when to go and when to stay because if you stay you individuate less in a way if you see what i mean and i don't want to turn this into sort of like some a hierarchy of quantification but you sort of see what i'm yeah. getting with that again it's going to depend on an individual circumstances for some people it would be individuation to stay for example um a character who had an esfj type may feel that they would rather put their own needs to one side and support the parents and that for them would be individuating according to type Mm. you know um as in that this is the uh, the initial way that you would find the movements in your personality is going i.e towards the type that you are it may well be that this person's not an esfj but has become one to adapt to the situation at home so it gets very very complicated mm. Indi- individualism rather than individuation would suggest that yes you move away from your parents and you just like you know middle finger up and go and individuate myself mm-hmm. that's not necessarily individuation and the result of this, obviously, is going to be basically a neurotic conflict. And, and, and neurosis is just a division. That's all it is. Wherever there are choices to be made and there's a moral choice to be made, we get into conflict. So, yes, there's going to be a neurotic opportunity to address who you really are simply by facing that problem. Yes. Yeah. Okay. And then yeah. it's, it's an individual uh, circumstances that you, you could resolve that. There's no general rule that you could apply okay cool cool i guess the second point i had on that was then this whole idea of being in the abyss in your i guess clinical experience we use abyss metaphorically like things are really really bad so either things are really really bad or it's an internal emotional state for example depression or severe anxiety yeah again don't want to sort of quantify things but if someone thinks they're in the abyss yeah. One is generally statistically more likely. Things are actually screwed and you've got to have that masculine grit to get yourself through. Or is it more a case of just something inside you is wrong? There's some kind of complex that, that's responsible for it. And therefore you don't need to have that overemphasis on a top down value system on yourself to stay. Okay. Again, as I say, it, this is a moral situation. Mm-hmm. And uh, people who hold a strong religious belief of whatever kind will probably look to that to give them their answer. Having strong masculine grit, great, if it's appropriate. And I say if, because sometimes it isn't. Mm -hmm. It isn't because if you overamp somebody in that way through suggestion, you know, as a therapist, if you say to somebody, well, go out and be a man, next thing you know, you've actually encouraged somebody to go and be violent. Mm-hmm. and someone might actually die as a result this kind of thing can happen you have to be very very careful again clinically what you should do is work with another person human being to get to the core of their nature and to help them to see what they need to do not what other people think that they need to do the answer has to come from within mm, okay this is the oh. problem i've got with general panaceas you know where, where people say to do things like that yeah, I like, like this approach. This is one of the reasons why I've decided to go, well, one of many reasons, towards Jung and away from Nietzsche, for example, merely as a product of Nietzsche being philosophy yeah. rather than focusing on this, you could say, the soul of the individual, right? Where it's like rather than a cookie cutter method that you could apply to, to people and tell you how you should act, it's more like bringing the whole of biology into it, I think would be the best way of phrasing it. All of yeah. your being coming together and yeah. much more fun than engaging that way anyway. Well, well, what it is, I mean, we're not just archetypes, we're also instincts. We are biological entities. 
all of this needs to be taken into consideration. And when people start to work clinically, and I, I'm going to say in frontline healthcare more than anywhere, because you get the variation of human nature in there that you don't get even in a psychiatric hospital. And in a way, you certainly don't get if the level of analysis, description and explanation is purely philosophical, because that ends up being abstract and mm -hmm. you know meaningless, basically. When you, you work with real people who are suffering, that's uh, completely different. That tests everything about you yeah. and everything about them. Yeah, completely agree. Completely agree. So I highly recommend it. <laughs> you start work. You start working on yourself first and foremost because you are the vehicle. You are the agency of helping other people. The insight you get into yourself will help you to get insight into others, and gradually it becomes a shared journey as you grow. Then you can help other people as yes. well, and then you learn from the, your experience with them how better to apply things to yourself. So it, it's a positive upward movement rather than a depressing down into the abyss movement. Yeah, yeah. It's one of the biggest things I've, I've learned on, on this front is, yeah. um, is th the more I actually delved into who I was meant to be, the more I realized I despised suffering so much. Because yep. there's Why nothing to, to glorify about suffering no. itself. No. You know, because that can, especially if things are quite bad, there is a tendency, mm. especially with some of the material on the internet right now, to have suffering as kind of like your star to move towards. And it's like, I don't yeah. think that's true whatsoever. And your, your no. body will fight back. Everyone else will fight back. And it just doesn't seem to work. Which is why, you know, I, I don't, I think we were talking about this the, the other day. I don't like philosophy very much. It's like you, you have the Greeks, for example. And then it's kind of like mm. after that, well, I don't need any of this other stuff. It's hmm. for, for psychology in many ways, to me, at least psychology that's actually based and proper. Unlike some of the other schools, I guess, that kind of exist is maybe this is my personal myth coming out and trying to put the ion series into context but it is that mm -hmm. unification of the spiritual and the material worlds the two yep. opposites christ and antichrist as jung framed it in that that particular context yeah. coming together where it's like yeah. the mind yeah. and and the body it's science yeah. and it's that realm Absolutely. of values coming together and at the center of it is like why would you suffer in this case when we have the means to get rid of it yeah this might not be the, the right time to mention it, but th this is something to think about. And it's a difficult concept. It's difficult to articulate verbally and it's difficult to reason about. But um, obviously you're familiar to some extent with alchemy in Jung's works mm -hmm. and the idea that they projected the psyche into matter. Mm -hmm. The reverse of that is also true. Mm -hmm. And that's where it gets difficult. The notion of the reverse of projecting the psyche into matter, whereby we then find matter being put into some ephemeral idea of a separate substance, which we call psyche. Yes, yes. Yeah, so There is a precedent for this. It's in the Gnostic Gospels, mm -hmm. which um, we, we can discuss. But this has been known for a long time. So is this, uh, if I get your general train of thought here, it would be something to do with uh, psyche and biology being in some way separate? Is that no, the general they're, they're idea? The no, they're the same. The, the same, okay. The same. But, but, it's but the, two sides it's, of the same coin. Yeah, two sides of the same coin. But it's, it's the idea of projection. It's quite easy to see how somebody could project their unconscious into a physical process, i.e. the alchemical process. Mm -hmm. Yeah, But the idea, if you like, of taking the notion, the psychological notion of what matter is, and then generating a philosophical idea about a separate substance. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. In a Descartesian sense, and then projecting matter into that. In other words, the, the reality of matter, 
into something which is... Ah, yeah. You get me? Yeah. Now, if you believe in honest mundus and it's one world, there is no separateness between yeah. them. It just depends upon the lens through which you look and then the language, the special language that you use to describe what you're, you're looking at. But the projection of, of uh, the psyche into matter is easy to understand because we are psychological beings. But the idea that we create the notion of psyche and make it as real as matter through another kind of projection takes a, a, a lot more analysis. Yes, yeah, which is why you, why you mentioned it. It's like, that's what people see is two separate things because, yeah. because of that projection. Gotcha, Absolutely. gotcha. Yeah, that makes well, sense. The thing is, you know, people accuse me of being a materialist because I speak like this and I say, well, I am. But I don't know what matter is, do you? Do you know where it begins and where it ends? I mean, do you know how deep down it goes? Can you extend your consciousness that deep that you can get so fundamental, you can get down to the level of the quantum phone and below? Can you do that? I don't know anybody who can. I know people who can project their own psychology into the idea of that, but that's completely different from actually being able to go down there. And Jung talked about a psychoid boundary. He also made it very, very clear that we cannot, experience an archetype in itself only its image so for him there were limits to what consciousness can provide mm. and yet matter continues doesn't it it continues to reduce further and further down and it continues to go up higher and higher in terms of complexity so when i say i'm a materialist what i'm saying is this it's not that i don't think there is such a thing as psyche i just i'm not convinced at all it is separate to what we sometimes call matter i just don't know where it ends i don't know where it begins but i do know that there are different levels of analysis description and explanation yeah 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 it sounds, it sounds like the ouroboros symbol to me you don't quite yeah, know where it begins and where, where it ends yeah the well problem is, the problems and limitations of the psyche it starts to imagine itself, if you like, as being something separate to itself. And this is when you get that kind of projection into matter, into physicality, as being a separate thing, rather than being a continuation. Mm. Yeah, I guess that's the basis of all perception in a way, is, is that we, we perceive the world and we have presumed for a long time that our senses perceive everything. But you have yeah. things which go under the threshold of consciousness as it is de described. It's interesting that uh, you know, people conflate materialism with you think we should run around in the streets killing everybody and i think that's that's only because of our current you know zeitgeist where we're like well you've got yeah. the atheist uh, communist types yeah. and then you've got the conservative christian types and it's like this yeah. kind of dichotomy war and it's like well, the conservative yeah. christians are for the family and therefore all of this is built into the idea of materialism so so yeah, yeah i mean it makes perfect sense what you're what you're saying we don't know what matter is made of as far as i'm aware the oh. last time I, I checked it goes down to you know you've got sort of string theory down the bottom yeah. it's like well yeah. what, where do these strings come from precisely and then it just gets lower and lower and lower and lower and lower i where don't know do, where does it begin and where does it end yeah. And why should we think that, that there's anything which is separate to a single continuum, which includes matter? Yeah. But at what point do you say it's no longer matter? And what's the basis for saying that that's the case? I'll give you an example. I mentioned before that, that Jung said that you cannot know psychologically what an archetype is, and you certainly can't know psychologically what the self is. What you get is an impression through a symbol. Uh, and as you know, that, that symbol is a resultant image. It's not the thing in itself. It's mm -hmm. something that consciousness can understand, which is produced unconsciously and then delivered to conscious awareness in a way which sums it up. 
But in Jung's day, it, the understanding of biology was not as, as sensitive as it is now. Jung was very clear that the self was an organismic thing it included biology. It wasn't separate, but people treat it as if it's separate, as if it's just a psychological thing. It isn't. It's the whole thing. And you can actually now, through established pathways, psychoneuroendocrine, psychoneuroimmune, for example, take information which is psychological and then transduct it down into biology and even affect things at a genetic level. Mm. And you can take information at sort of genetic level and you can bring it up out of the body, crossing over young psychoid boundary and then make it conscious. Yeah. Now this, this is a reality and it's a reality of clinical therapy. And this is something that young couldn't do in his day because the information, the theory and the practicality wasn't there. And it's something that we have to accept that his ideas need updating. Yes. Yeah. That, that that's, could be the easiest frame shift. The way, I've seen before the self dis, you know, described as kind of like the God in the psyche or yeah. the God outside of the psyche. Also, Jung yeah. made it clear that the self was psychic totality it, it, it itself. Did. And then if, if the idea is, and we have every reason to suspect this, you know, if I suddenly dosed you with LSD, you'd, you'd, you'd go yeah. off your mind for a little while, which mm. means matter affects the psyche. You know, Absolutely. so we, we, we do have a way. And if I cut off half of your brain, you'd lose who you were, for example, it does yeah. come from there. It is the same thing, right? It is. So therefore, if the psyche is sort of biological totality, I think that, yeah. that it's an immediate frame shift, which removes any of the, for me, as I experienced it, paranoia without yeah. properly understanding this stuff, which is there is yeah. a God which is watching me that's outside of space and time and it's yeah. controlling everything in front of me. It's like, no, no, it's just your body. R relax. Yeah, people are uh, um, rather selective when they quote Jung about the self and God. You know, if you really, really look into his works, he was uh, non-committal on whether God existed outside of the psyche's perception. Yeah, it was always the image itself. of God that he spoke about, the wasn't it? God. Yeah, ab absolutely, absolutely. And that's a psychological level of analysis, description and explanation because it's what you can experience phenomenologically. Mm. But he thought, and he was right, that at the time there was a limit to how far down into biology you could go with normal consciousness. Now there are people who are Jungians and who are also psychophysiologists who've been working to dig down deep into the genetic layers of our being at an informational level. Mm. And they're bringing that information up to consciousness and it's exchanging, it's going both ways. Ernest Rossi is, is one. And over 20 years ago, I was corresponding with him and working with his remote supervision uh, on, on working with people who have some horrendous conditions. And I can tell you that it is possible to affect genes in the human body through through a the, the yes. psyche basically yeah yeah, yeah. But, you, but you have to know you have to know what the pathways are and you have to be able to, to use them and it's just like psychoneuroendocrine psychoneuroimmune they're two of the the most well-known ones but there are others as well well maybe this is kind of a, a, a simpler understanding of it but if i yell at you really loudly then yeah. you know you your gene expression will change but that's at the epigenetic level are you suggesting an actual genetic change yes are you familiar with rossi's work i am yeah 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 Yeah, i think it's something we should um we should do a podcast on mm. okay because that, that guy is incredible I, I think he's moved young ahead more than anybody since young's death without a doubt mm. Okay, well, we can do a podcast on that fairly soon then. Sweet. Yep.
then yeah. uh, let's move on to the third question here. And this comes from my friend Baldebrock. Uh, and he asks, uh, it's about Dante's Inferno. He says, the spirits Dante meets in heaven reside beyond time and space in the platonic world with the company of God or in the union with God. But what about those he meets in hell? Are they bound to our fallen worlds for all eternity or is hell a third world, neither, ma neither of matter or God? If so, what is the nature of this non-platonic, non-material existence? I've got a few thoughts on this. Do you have anything, Steve? Well, what I would bring to the discussion there might be considered a little bit reductive because I would consider the whole of the thing a myth rather than an objective truth. Mm -hmm. And in that sense, I would look at it as a narrative uh, and I would look at how the narrative had been put together and then how that relates to psychological experience uh, rather than it being literally true in it, say in a religious sense. <clears throat> if I was working clinically with somebody, then if they were a believing Christian, I would absolutely support them in that belief and I would work with them within that paradigm but if i'm being asked as me then i would treat that as a myth mm. that doesn't mean that it's not true it means that it is true in a psychological sense and that embedded within that myth are all sorts of truths that can be used to help people so i would take it from that point and from that perspective rather than it being literally true yeah i think i take the same same approach because the way uh, the way you're phrasing this question bad bad rock is kind of like there's a there's a myth that's laid out and there's a story yeah. how this fit within the realm of physics and metaphysics and all of this yeah. stuff whereas the, the the point of dante's inferno if you like from from my point of view anyway is dante's personal myth and the way yeah. i think a lot of people including me for, for a little time approached it was this is kind of some genius piece of work which takes the 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 pristine morality laid out in the gospels and says, this is how it would act in some kind of hierarchy of evil. I don't think that anymore. And you know, the idea, you can see the, the, the Jungian motifs and archetypes within there. You yeah. would say that Beatrice is his anima. And then yes. what lots of people do say, for example, is that like the inferno is his own shadow. Like the, the layers of hell is his own shadow. I don't think that anymore. I think the whole story is his own shadow because yeah. what he wanted yeah. was Beatrice but he yes. didn't get it because he was too busy yeah. chasing around the shadows of Christianity and therefore yeah. putting everybody else down. If you put it in the context of Dante's life, it's really fascinating because yes. he, he, was, he was thrown out of Florence, basically, politically. He had a wife and he had kids there. He really wanted this, this Beatrice girl. He had a wife and kids, didn't see them again either ever or for a very long time. He was exiled out to, to another neighboring town or city. And then he literally said to himself, I'm going to be the best poet who ever lived. And so he wrote a couple of other works first that weren't, that weren't uh, accepted. They, they didn't get, they're pretty cool. They're very well, well written ideas, but he then wrote the divine comedy as a way for him to be the best poet, which is yeah. why within the first few cantos, he approaches Homer and he approaches Horace and all these other guys. And yeah. he puts himself with them which is kind of a really telling thing. He, and the idea is he wants his Beatrice, but he's distracting himself with everything else, including the image of Christ. So you take that, what, what you will with that, I guess. I, is yeah. it a Christian masterwork or is, it a, is there a more meta level at which you can look at it, I guess? Well, from what you've said, I actually, I actually think you've, you've understood it better than most people. Well, I lived it for a while. This is the thing. Yeah. As, as a few of, other, of my friends, I lived the story and I, I don't know why. And, you know, I took the Western canon and I didn't know why I resonated with Dante so much. It was Dante and Faust I resonated a lot with. And for some reason, the wife of Bath's tale from, from the Canterbury yeah. Tales. But that's what I was doing when, through the Ion series and through 
last few years, I guess, there was very much an idea of I need a top-down value system to sustain me, which was Christianity. So I'm like, okay, there's this great, Dante's done it, right? He's laid down this, this hierarchy of, of hell. You can't yep. do this, you can't do this, you can't do this. You should do this, you should do this. But at the end of the day, I wasn't a happy boy, right? And it's the same thing where Dante wanted his Beatrice. I wanted to be happy and I was distracting myself yeah. with all kinds of fluff. So I could put yep. myself in his shoes. I don't know what type he was. Maybe he was an INTP at the same time, which is why perhaps with his, his sensation, his feeling function weren't as well developed but I, yeah it's because yeah. i lived it for a while i guess yeah. i think i think you've really really understood it well forgive me but when i compare what you've just said to what you have done with respect to uh dante i think you've really really moved on thank you thank you thank you i i, I had um you can actually watch there's there was an unconscious realization of what the story was without consciously knowing it when i i began yeah. the dante series yeah. with dante is a love story most people don't even go that far it's like it is a love story well, yeah, I agree. And also for the boyos, if they're going through something similar and a lot of them are um, with girls, um, they will be able to put themselves into that narrative and they'll be able to adjust little bits of it to fit. But really the underlying truth, the underlying archetypal narrative is there. Remember that an archetype is not an individual figure. This is something that's really important that people misunderstand all the time. To talk of the hero archetype is a reductive thing. Uh, if you take a hero, any hero, out from his or her narrative, then you have a non-playable character. The actual narrative itself is the archetype. The archetype is the whole situation. Yeah. That's the important thing. And as you say, Dante created an entire situation, which was basically he turned his head inside out and, and displayed his personal myth, mm -hmm. put it in front of his own face and in, and in front of other people's faces as well, uh, so that they could link with it in an attempt to solve himself. Mm. The archetypes are not, there's no wise old man outside of a narrative that explains the function of the wise old man in a specific case. There's no hero without... A narrative for the hero either it's mm. just dead yeah it's important that people understand that yeah so you can't just take the the layers of, of hell and go this is a this is an objective archetypal truth if you yeah. like yeah. you can't it can't work yeah. like that what, what I, i'd like to think and i've talked to a few of my friends about this is like take the divine comedy and then write a last chapter where rather than yeah. he comes out the other end yeah. And, Good idea. and uh, you know, he, he comes out and he's like, right, I'm, I'm now well on my way. I can climb this hill. I can get past these three cats or animals that are coming after me yeah. and reach Christ. Rather than that, have him go back to Florence and find Beatrice and then see if it actually <laughs> changes the rules. Of course, she was dead by, by then, but he lives in yeah. a fictional land. But I think that would make a, I don't know, a, a nice frame shift to the story that might have a, a happy ending rather than a faux yeah. happy ending. Yeah. Sweet. Okay. So now for the fourth question also comes from Baldebrock. Thank you, my friend. He says, if God imbued man with free will so that man might choose to love God and act righteously with agency, then why the need for Christ's sacrifice? He is not but a prophet. So his death is not a redemption in the sense that he merely revealed the narrow path. The narrow path were anyway attainable from the get go as man were given free will and therefore responsibility and the potential for love of God from the get-go. So in what sense am I saved from my sins or redeemed or whichever formulation you use? As you think, Steve, you've, we've, we've talked about similar things before. I think you probably got a pretty good take on this in terms of the shadow of Christianity and yeah. that, that need for some kind of savior figure to, to, to pull you up. Because that then, yeah. if that's a necessity, then it does also, 
it, the shadow that it casts over people and your current state with the need to follow this is innate from the get-go, right? So I'm sure you've got some thoughts on that. Well, um, I'm going to repeat myself, I'm afraid, and say that the value psychologically in this is to, to divide it to some extent and say, on the one hand, it's a religious question. Uh, and within that, so that framework, it requires a religious answer. If you take, though, the question and place it purely in a psychological narrative, in other words, accept it as being a myth, you can immediately start to see what's going on inside your own head. If you ask a question like that, you can see how certain complexes are at work and how they're getting into relationship to one another. You can even attach that to your personal myth and begin to find a place where you can stand in order to move on. There's an awful lot you can do if you treat it psychologically. If you treat it in a religious sense, I do worry, shall I say, that people will start to become arrested in their development because the religion itself will contain a person's expression of themselves and will contain their individuation. But if they can just say, hang on a minute, let's put this purely in, into a psychological framework and say, this is inside my head. This illustrates where I am at. What does that figure represent? What does that figure represent? You'll make progress immediately. You don't have to give up your religious belief. You just use this as a mirror to turn internally inside yourself and have a look at your own psychological landscape on the inside. Yes, yes, yes. I think it's at the beginning of Psychology and Alchemy, where Jung begins by saying, like, the alchemists had the real version of Christianity, and whether, the, whether or not they knew it consciously or not, it was a psychological phenomena. But what, where most Christians go wrong, in Jung's opinion, was they project their sins against Christ. So in many ways, they're crucifying him in a way where he's, he's there, but all of your problems are on him to sort of deal with. And in that sense, definitely get what you mean in terms of it arrests your own development. You see what I mean? The kind of um, Christ there is there to stabilize you. But in, in, in the alchemical means, you can look at it more sort of psychologically, but just on a more, on a more religious way, I guess, to clear up what the general Christian story is, you had Adam and Eve who were, who were in the garden and that was paradise. We were in our, you know, yeah. you can look at it in terms of development of, of, of consciousness and whatever else, but, what Adam and Eve did is that they betrayed God. And the way they did this was they ate the apple and their eyes opened, which could be the, the um, development of some kind of level of self-consciousness, either at the, yeah. in terms of phylogenetics, I guess, rather yeah. than just sort of on, ontological. You could do it that way, yes. Yeah, I mean, there, there are loads of things, but in any way we fell from heaven. And so what we needed was some kind of redemption to redeem our sins. So what Adam took off the tree Christ restored by being hung on the tree, for example. And, that, and, and many people have used this story for a very long time to various degrees to help themselves and to stabilize themselves. And I don't want to take that from anyone either. But no. the, from my experience anyway, to focus on that story and to use Christ as the thing which will save you takes all of your unique individuality and your own gifts and kind of breaks it away. Because this was interesting when we were doing, uh, when I was doing ION, which was such an intense period of psychological development for me, mm -hmm. I came across the idea of like, okay, I'm a scientist, but the antichrist is represented by science. And of course, Jung wasn't saying you can't be a scientist. He was a scientist, right? But I, I had that going like, well, what we really should be focusing on is morality and, and, and philosophy. Yeah. I shouldn't be a scientist because it's destroying the world. But who I was wasn't going to come out from that particular model. It was top down imposed on me. And it stabilized me for a period of time. But what do you lose at the end of the day? Was, was, was it Christ says, you know, what, 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 what will it profit a man if he, if he gains the whole world but loses his own soul? Mm. But, and the key point being loses his own soul. And Christ, of course, he did say many times, which people do tend to kind of wash over, come be a Christ beside me. And it would depend what the, what the word Christ means. 
come be beside me rather than yeah. underneath me and follow me around. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, there's a lot there. There's, there's a huge amount. I've worked, I mean, talk about loss of soul. Um, I've worked with priests, Anglican and Catholic, who have lost their souls, lost their faith. Um, I didn't think it was my role to bring them over to the other side of the pavement, should we say. Um, it was mainly to see what the wider personality had in mind for them and then take it from there and they could make their own choice based on that. But I certainly would not want to uh, attempt to push anybody away from a religious belief if it was right for them. But it is possible for some people to hold a religious belief in a neurotic and self-destructive sense. Yeah. Um, uh, and you see a terrific amount of turmoil in such a person. They project a shadow all over the place. Everyone's evil but them. But at the same time, they're, they're rent asunder on the inside and they're also attacking themselves, usually internally, with the same kind of fervor that they attack other people. Um, I did mention to you a, a case of a, a very devout Catholic woman who was a nurse. Mm -hmm. um, won't mention any names. She uh, came to me with this fantasy that she was Mary Magdalene and then that would um, excuse her promiscuity. But at the same time, she saw it as her duty to go around seducing men who were spiritual, if at all possible. It could be a priest, it could be a consultant. In fact, one of them was a consultant that she worked with. She'd also managed to seduce one of her previous therapists. Not me, I might add. Mm, well done. In, fact, in fact, her previous therapist came to me um, and said that he'd had an affair with a patient. So... I was helping him with that and then she found out who I was from him and then she came in like a Trojan horse to try and undermine him. But the first thing she came in, uh, the first thing she said when she came in and sat down is, I can see Satan's horns growing out of your head, which, you know, is like a psychiatric delusion. It's of a delusional intensity. But I took it seriously, not in the sense of, yes, I am Satan, but she was seeing that. Mm. Um. Anyway, to cut a long story short, we managed to turn her around, um, not to rob her of her religious belief, but get it into balance. Mm -hmm. And what she did is she actually went over to Lake Zurich, to Bollingen, with her consultant lover, and she skinny dipped outside uh, Carl Jung's tower as a mm. form of ritual baptism, which she thought cleansed her of her previous predilections. And as soon as she did that, she no longer, she felt needed to project any more onto consultants or doctors or therapists or whatever. Her anus had been sorted out. She'd been baptized in the waters, the sacred waters of Lake Zurich outside of the Bollingen Tower. And she even took a photograph of it, not of the skinny dipping, but of the tower. And uh, that was the last time I saw her. She presented me with it as part of the transference relationship. And that was the end of the therapy. So she'd been baptized again as a Christian, but this time in a different way uh, and had been able to integrate her animus properly, accept who she was and as a natural instinctive woman. Hence the turning of that, if you like, into a Mary Magdalene fantasy. And uh, that was a classical Jungian analysis. Mm. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, it's a really, really cool story. When you mentioned uh, the, 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 the Satan yeah. thing, just really this quickly. Was an, this is an NHS nurse who would take your blood pressure, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> she, she had these very peculiar, very powerful religious fantasies, which if you took them seriously, you know, some psychiatrists would have sectioned her. Yeah. 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 On the basis of that. 
Yeah. I mean, I yeah. did challenge her a couple of times. I mean, I, I used the idea that she's projecting Satan or Lucifer or whatever it was onto me as, a, as, an, as an aspect of the trickster uh, elements of the, um, of the animus. Mm-hmm. And she had also this fear about death. So I said, well, you're not going to die. You're a Christian. Christians don't die. They're all reborn. If you're a believing Christian, you are not going to die. Mm-hmm. And it completely deflated her at that point because she was brought then into immediate uh, conflict with her fear of death and her religion that told her that because she believed she would not die. It yeah. just opened it up like that. And then that boiled down to it being, this is why she was promiscuous because promiscuity is basically to do with reproduction. Mm-hmm. It's the libido and the life force, which was challenging the fear in her that she would die. So she could just go around with lots of sex. She'd never die. Mm. She had then she had then to to turn that into something that fitted her religious belief, a religious myth. So she became Mary Magdalene, the bride of Christ, and elevated herself. But by doing that, it just kept it in balance to continue being Mary Magdalene. It didn't actually cure her, so to speak. She had to go through quite a bit first, uh, a lot of withdrawal of projections, and then go through this other baptism. She didn't tell me she's going to do that. That had to be a secret, if you like, that she went and did it and then came back and said, look what I've done. Uh, and I'm free yeah. and I don't need you now as a therapist and I don't need to be Mary Magdalene anymore. I've been baptized by the animus spiritually and I'm sorted and that's it. It's all over and done. By the way, there's the photograph. Yeah. Yeah. That, right. is, that, that is a shamanistic thing to hand that over. I mean, I'll, get, I'll show you something else I've got. Sweet. Sweet. This had horns on it. And that was um, given to me by a patient as well. And I, I think you know the story of this one. Yeah, yeah, I do. But if you could tell the people, that'd be cool. Yeah, well, um, the girl who made that was an artist. And she was gay. And her mother brought her in. This was a long time ago. This was probably 25 years or more so ago, I would say. Brought, um, brought her daughter in. And um, she was a friend of the practice manager at the practice that I was at. And I think she thought she could get some kind of... Uh, moral leverage through that friendship on me to turn her daughter around so she wouldn't be gay anymore and i let her know that that's just not on the agenda you know don't do things like that it's completely wrong but i would see her daughter if her daughter who was an adult wanted to, to do so and uh, she came in and there was a lot going on and i found out what the cause it was a trauma it was an abuse trauma as a child which her mother didn't know about so we had to work on that and sort all of that out as far as we could and then gradually the process got deeper and deeper. And the deeper you get in to something, the more the archetypes kick off. And also the more you get an increase in synchronicities. And you also get an increase, believe it or not, in paranormal phenomenon as well. Mm. Very weird things start to happen. After a while, you just accept it because you know you're working at, at a certain depth. Um, and if you don't uh, get to, dare I say, materialistic about it in that, you know, wrong way of being a materialist. The psyche will forgive you. If you start to dig your heels in and deny that the reality of, the, of these things is going on, then you'll find that there's a trickster element will, will kick in and it'll start to come for you. And I've, I learned that lesson a long time ago and I just don't do it anymore. It, it's, it's all about giving respect to the moments and what happens in the moments. Anyway, again, to cut a long story short, we were definitely down at that level where we would expect something to happen. And uh, this was before 
we'd found out or she'd revealed what the trauma was to do. It was with her father, as you might imagine, who worked for the RSPCA. Mm-hmm. An aside. Um, I had a dream about her. And in the, in the night before I was due to see her, and in the dream, we are in a Tudor house. I was in a Tudor house. And there was a, a fireplace and it had been bricked up. And there was something in the fireplace and I had to get it. And I knew it was in connection with this particular girl. So I took a pickaxe to the, to the, um, the chimney breast, broke it open. And inside I found this little clay devil. Mm-hmm. And I knew if I could take that out, I would take it out and away from her. Like, like a shaman would. And that that's what her psyche wanted. The psyche wanted to transfer that. Not in a harmful way, but in a way that I would then safely dispose of it. It would mean that she wouldn't have to have it. But that was the secret as well. And it was, it was summed up in that, in that image. And it was, a, it was the devil. Anyway, she, she came in the next day. And um, I thought, right, I'm going to tell her that I've had a dream that involved her and what it was. And I told her. And she started smiling. She reached down into her handbag and she pulled that out. And she said, I made this for you yesterday. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, then, and, then, and then she said, I had a dream about you as well. Oh, right. Well, what was that? Well, we left here and your car wouldn't start. And I snorted at that because my car was brand new. My brand new car was not going to not start. Mm. The end of the session, I walk out with her, you know, and go to see her off, get in the car. It wouldn't start. Stop it. Stop it, stop no, no, it. it. Repeatedly would not start. So I got the AA out. The AA guy turned out, got in the car, turned the key, and it started immediately. And then I knew that I was being told that there was a synchrony of rapport, a sympathetic resonance between her psyche and mine. And I had to accept what had happened. I had to accept that, you know, fully, that it was absolutely real, that, that my dream anticipated her action, her dream anticipated what happened to me and that shows that the depth that we were at and I was completely comfortable with that and I knew that we're going to get this girl right and we did you have to trust the psyche you really do have to trust it it does take a bit of courage um, but if you do and if you pay sufficient respect it will work with you I'll give you another example just while we're mm-hmm. on I hope, I hope that's not no go for know, it go for it go for it okay. um, woman was referred to me and she was um, rather cruelly referred to uh, uh, as a burnt-out psychotic. She'd been on serious psychiatric medication for over 30 years, and she would drool, um, couldn't speak properly, her mind was clouded all the time. And I went on intuition, uh, gut feeling. I think it was intuition, but it felt like a good a gut feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, and I asked her if she, if she ever dreamt about anything, and uh, don't do that. So... Don't know why, but this this certainty came in me. I said, you'll have a dream, and that dream will tell me what I need to do to help you. But more than that, it will tell you if I can help you, and if your deep unconscious mind will allow me to help you. Anyway, she went away, and she came back, and she said, I've had a dream. What is it? I said, well, I was in my house, and I painted everything white. Everything. And this was a woman who suffered from severe depression for 30 years. Mm-hmm. And then she said, when I, when I finished painting the inside of my house white, outside a white car arrived. And I got in the white car and drove away. And then again, this intuition spoke out through me. And I said, we will get you well. And not only will we get you well, we'll get you off that medication. Mm-hmm. And I said it with absolute certainty because I believed it in the moment because the psyche had responded positively. 
And I thought, you know, afterwards, that's a hell of a responsibility, but I've been given permission to do it. And yes, we got her off all of her medication, although the psychiatrist said you can't do that. The unfortunate thing is that uh, when we recovered her normal personality, um, that was been astrologist, she was a very unpleasant and very ungrateful lady, but there you go. Mm-hmm, That's mm-hmm. what human. Wherever she was behind that medication came through. It wasn't very nice, but it was her, and that has to be valued. So it sounds like all of this, um, distill everything you've said down into just one word is sincerity, basically, or You've authenticity. Have you, have to, you have to have it. The, the, the thing that, that really got me is that when I was young, forgive me, your age, um, yes, a long time ago, yeah, 40 odd years ago, <laughs> the knowledge was important. That was, the theoretical stuff was the most important thing because I was acquiring an understanding of everything that I was experiencing. And I had to put that into a model because then I couldn't otherwise interpret anything that I was experiencing. And I'd been working on myself for years and I just at your age started working in a psychiatric unit um, with our patient psychiatry and uh, psychotherapy. And I did learn quite a bit from there. Uh, they weren't up to the level I wanted to be at. Uh, they, they were never going to be, but they were, they were doing good work with people. And the thing that really stood out was the relational elements. That was the most important thing. But I thought, well, you know, if you only knew about Carlium, you could get much deeper into this. You could sort this out. Mm-hmm. But as I, as I got older, I realized that I had to stop building the theory because I've got enough and I had to start living it. I'd worked on myself and I'd gotten as far as I could and I was working with Pauline and in the relationship, we were working on one another. But I had to work with real people in depth, not just at the level of psychiatric outpatient psychotherapy clinic. I had to work in depth with them and that's where I would get the challenges. And it was then that um, all the counterpoints to my conscious personality came through. Which is the opposite side to my INCP personality, where my anima came through as a function. Uh, and I realized I've just got to respect the psyche as a real force, not just in me and not just in my relationship, but in everybody. And it's an interactive thing, it's a field phenomenon. Uh, and as you, you engage with that field phenomenon, there are certain rules. And the rule, as you rightly say, number one is respect. If you respect the psyche, it will give back to you. If you don't, it will hurt you. It will punish you. It will humiliate you. It will make you look stupid. Um, it will create a, a very bad counter-transference from your patients. It will also damage the patients as well. And by the way, I do call people patients, not clients, because prostitutes and accountants have clients. Mm. Mm-hmm. Whereas the Latin root for patience is patience, meaning to suffer. And these people are suffering. And uh, I have a rule of thumb, which is people shouldn't suffer. Yes. You're not meant to suffer. A stable biological system, psychobiological system, is not meant to dysregulate and suffer. It's contraindicated for survival. And it's a stupid idea and a stupid philosophy that people should suffer. We should put an end to suffering. That's what we yes. should do. Yes, 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 yes. That's what we should do. End of. And if you work with other people, you will soon get that. And if you don't, you're a fucking bully. If you work with people and want to work out on them, you're an effing bully. What you should do is is do everything you possibly can in all humility to reach another human being and and put an end to their suffering, wherever that is, in whatever way that you can. And then you've added one grain of sound onto the right side of the scales of balance. Yes. That you work with. Yes, yes. So yeah, so yeah, respect for the psyche uh, and it'll respect you back. And it does play tricks on you if 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 you if you get out, out of your out of your you know your limit. 
Yeah, yeah. And indeed, with uh, many dreams I had, had that trickster thing that came up, which was absolutely the way those dreams were crafted was as if there was a God who was trying to play tricks on me. It's, um, it was so unbelievably perfect. On the suffering note as well, completely and utterly agree with you. And of course, there are lots of philosophies that come along and go like, well, yeah. suffering is a, is a good thing. Although, although, you know, our first principle should be that suffering is okay or life is suffering and all, all, all these other things. It's like, get out of your head is, would, would be my mm. response to that. It's like, get out of your head, live in your body. Like you don't it's, want to suffer, but it's the, that idea of want, which is sort of this, thrown away. It's like, well, it doesn't is, matter what you want. We're just going to reduce everything down to the realm of words and logic. And it's not even logical either. It's like, no. what is your body and what is your psyche want? Because that's the game you're playing. There is no yeah. other game in the clouds of like, well, it's okay if I can. It's, no, it's complete nonsense. And when you are suffering, or if maybe not yourself either, maybe if someone that you love is suffering, do you really want yeah. them to keep suffering? And then the response, is, I've, I've had these conversations before and the response is like, well, rather than focus on the reduction of suffering, focus on yourself being the best possible person so that they will never have to suffer. So this is all just philosophical fluff. Like it gets it's, rid of any kind of time frame. It, it gets rid of can, compassion. Can I just and, uh, interject there? Do it, um, interject. Yeah. This is a social thing again, isn't it? That if you focus completely on yourself, there's an element of narcissism there. Mm -hmm. A lack of social engagements, schizoid withdrawal even, can lead to a very overamped narcissism that you're the most important thing. Yes, you should put yourself right in order to help others, but we live in a social world. Yeah. And if we abrogate that responsibility to others, I'm surely this would resonate with Christianity as well, that you, you should help other people. It's yeah. a moral thing to do. Whereas if you just are interested in yourself, that is the path to narcissism. Yeah. It's one of the things I love most about some Christian individuals. Some of, some of the Mormons I used to hang out with over the course of, of the last year, they're some of the nicest, most genuine people. And some people that like the, 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 the Christian society, I guess, at universities, they'd give up. I mean, where most people would go out on a Friday and they'd get absolutely blind drunk, such as myself. These people would go out and wait for the blind drunk people to give them yeah. coffee and tea and biscuits to help them sober up and give them a hug. Of course, afterwards, slip them a little card that goes, come and meet Jesus Christ. We'll ignore that, that particular part. But there was a, a genuine piece of sincerity, the part of Christianity that's most important. You know, I, my, I, um, when I was a philosophical teenager, I'd go to my mum and be like, mum, I've got all these ideas about life. I've got all of these, these ideas. She's like, James, just be a good person. I'm like, no, you, like, define good, define person, define this. It's like, no, 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 mum was right in all of her wisdom. Yeah, yeah. Be a good person. And you know intrinsically what that means. Morality... Yeah. It, it mostly if not entirely as far as i'm concerned is an emergent thing through the evolutionary process that you know to be true through psychobiological instinct there is no yeah. there is no variation on that that front so we both don't like suffering which i guess live, live and let live aesop the the that, that smartest of all smart asses in greece who's stoned to death for saying it nevertheless live and let live if you can follow that formula you won't go wrong if other uh, yes. people also follow it, it won't go wrong. That, that, that's the basic, as I see it, fundamental of so, social homeostasis is live and let live. If you let other people live, they have to let you live. That means that, you know, violence and narcissism and aggression, you know, and, and, and all these other negative values will start to tone down. But mm. people can't do that. Yeah. They won't live and let live. Yeah, I, I, guess, I guess the key point, of course, as you said, is everybody follows that yes, rather, than, rather than just you obviously the suggestion is not if someone breaks in and threatens your wife and baby with a knife like they're not they letting live. you live are they exactly exactly no so exactly. in that case it's justified to deal with them yeah 
Yeah. You see, so it, it, it works. Oddly, it works. It's such a fundamental value. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, before we get too distracted with rants, we have one final question, which is also from, from Balderbrock. He asks, how yeah. could man love God with agency in the Garden of Eden? How can you talk of free will and voluntary love in a man who walks with God and have thus not developed an ego of any form? What exactly would be free in a man before the fall from the self? And if free will, and thus the possibility of love of God, is a consequence of the fall, why call it a fall? So I, I guess to put this in, in the Jungian context, if I understand what you're trying to get at, Balderbrock, is bef before there was an ego, we had the self. And the ego is responsible for free will. So how can we, without ego consciousness, say if we are completely unconscious, even today, and when people yeah. walk around as if they don't have an ego, for example, they just go with the whims, can that still be classified as free will? Well, it depends whether free will's real or not, doesn't it? That, that's the fundamental thing. Mm. And so what do you think? Well, again, I'm going to go back to biology. Mm hmm Here's a thought experiment. You have a time machine and you go back to the Cretaceous period. Say, it could be the mid-Cretaceous period where you're relatively safe from impacts from asteroids. Yeah? Mm -hmm. Bang in there. You could walk the entire face of the Earth and you will not find, other than your own head, the anima. It doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. Right? Human consciousness only exists in one... Assuming that you're on your own as a time traveler, it'd only be in you. It doesn't exist anywhere else. But instincts are. Instincts are everywhere. That basic uh, chassis is there. The reptilian brain that we have within us was there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, yes, I would agree that if you're not fully conscious, you can't have anything even appropriate approaching free will because there are too many conditioning factors, and most of them are biological. Yes. Yes. So, so the idea of like you get you get hungry and you go to food. There is no kind of yeah. Yeah. going like no, I will choose too fast. If you see what Absolutely. I mean? Absolutely. And instincts are, are in service of the genome, i.e., the biological aspect of the self. Mm -hmm. They impel people to fulfil certain behaviours that will guarantee survival, reproduction, and so forth. Which, at a non-ego level, is nevertheless a kind of individuation of the genome because it's fulfilling its genetic purpose. Yes. And so do you think then, uh, which would actually be a follow-up question from everybody, do you think that the ego or ego as, as the traditional Latin, is, as yeah, you call it, yeah. it yeah. does that have free will or is it an illusion? Regardless, I don't care either because you act um, as if you do. I, I think it's a moot point and it depends on what resolution you give to the concept of, of whether something's free or not. I'll give you an example from from the therapy world. Mm -hmm. There's a form of uh, therapy called Rogerian or person-centered therapy where they talk about giving people unconditional positive regard. And I always say to them, you failed immediately. There's no such thing as unconditional anything. But yet it's one of their core conditions. They say a therapist must give unconditional positive regard. Only someone who was unconscious that there was an unconscious yeah. could even come up with an idea like that. And they also say people are innately good. I see. And to them, there's no such thing as a shadow. To them, there's no such thing as the unconscious. Everything's ego or egocentric. And it's an egocentric, egocentric psychology as well that believes itself to have that kind of power because only a god and only a monotheistic, all-powerful deity could have true free will without conditions. 
Yes. And, if we, and if, if we identify with that, we're trying to appropriate the concept, the psychological concept, and therefore the archetype of the self to the ego. And that's going to cause problems because you can't fit the self inside the ego. It's like trying to fit Jupiter inside the planet Earth. It won't fit. Mm. Mm -hmm. and it will cause terrible problems. Yeah, so so the, the the frame shift then with the with the more depth psychology model is like, yeah, you have an ego and it may or may not have some kind of free will of its own, but you've also yeah. got all these other contending forces within your own psychobiology, Absolutely. Because the there instincts are... and the archetypes and complexes and everything else. Exactly, the, uh, and that's the first thing when you start working with complexes that people realize that they are autonomous to some extent. They have a, um, their own kind of consciousness. They have their own physiology as well because they, they just root down into the body and they affect certain organs. They have certain neuroendocrine profiles as well that are associated with the activity of a specific um, complex. And they're completely independent of your free, your free will. And if you just try free willing them away, it won't work. Yeah. yeah. This is where the whole, the whole trickster thing comes in as well, which is like, absolutely so, so interesting. Like I was like, I think that with my example from the previous video, my own story, I think I'm working 90 hours a week for a goal. It's like, no, it's not you. It's that, it's that trick. Something else is driving you and you had no yeah. idea. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. And very often it's something which is compensating for the attitude that we have uh, in such a way that we don't even know how it's doing it because we don't know what we're doing wrong so yeah. we can't recognize what, what the compensation is and very often when when you discover that compensatory mechanism and relate to it properly it backs off but you have to decipher it it's like the fairy tale rumpelstiltskin when you know you know rumpelstiltskin's name is powers broken and that's a metaphor for understanding how complexes work yeah when they're completely unconscious and you don't know their name, you can't define them as something that you can interact with. They have immense power. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. 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 Yeah. I guess, I guess on that thought, we've come to the end of the questions. Yeah. So thank you for your time, Steve, no problem. as always. Thanks everybody for submitting. We're going to do these once a month. So if you'd like to submit a question for us to, to dig into as we have done today, then you can do so if you sign up for the $10 tier or higher on Patreon. Until then, you'll be seeing other content on this channel from myself, perhaps with Steve getting involved too. Yes, loads and loads and lo loads of things planned. Lots of things very close to being released in the pipeline. Very, very, very excited about it. So thank you, everybody. Have a fantastic day. And thank you, Steve. Yes, thank you.